Okay, everybody, I know that this is rare, but we are going to do a little bit of an intro before we get to the intro of today's episode. When I was recording with Carlos, we had some technical issues that disconnected us a couple times. So, yeah, there might be some weird breaks. I'll do my best to get it all together seamlessly for you. But I didn't want you to lose his awesome story. So, without further ado, let's get into the forum. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Fat Guy Forum. I'm your host, Gormy, as always, here with you to share the stories and experiences of, of fat guys of all shapes and sizes and all points of their journeys. We have had a, an amazing group of, of, of guys come through already, and there's more to come. Especially, I'm, I'm excited for you to, to meet the person we're going to talk to today. It is his... First time coming on a podcast, so I am honored. Uh, his name is Carlos Figueroa. He is the cata Cataclysmic Titan. Am I getting that right, Carla Carlos? Got it. That's right. Okay, cat Cataclysmic Titan on Instagram. Carlos has had quite the year, but also quite the life and experience. And I'm just ready to dive right in with you, man. How are you doing today? Doing pretty good, man. Doing pretty good. How's everything over with you? Things are good. Things are good. It's a little... You know, you're you're I'm East Coast, you're West Coast. It's it's warm out here, so we're still we're in that we tend to be in that place of, you know, I'm in the northeast. So we enjoy the warmth but complain about it all summer till it goes away and then complain that it's cold. Uh where it's just it's a it's a New England genetic trait, I think. But uh, I'm doing I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. I've had a had a nice busy Saturday and I'm ready to ready for us to talk. I'm excited. Same here, man. Same here. Uh, Awesome. So we, as always, longtime listeners of the longtime listeners of the show, you know, we're so many episodes in, will know that with our guests, I like to take have them take us back to when things started for them, and and tell the story of, of how where their how their lives took shape. So if if you want to get us going, Carlos, we'll we'll kick it off. Absolutely. Um. So I've pretty much been a pretty let's say hefty person uh, my entire life. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think I can recall any, any picture of myself when I was a kid that didn't, uh, that didn't obviously show that I was, uh, you know, heavier or portly or anything. I mean, going into, uh, school, it was, you know, it was a constant battle, um, finding, you know, clothing, my size, things like that. I, it, it's, I couldn't really specifically pinpoint when, uh, I know I started noticing or my family started noticing that I was getting bigger. Um, but it was at a very young age. So most of my life, you know, some people say that they've, uh, you know, they, they were fine all throughout school and then they started ballooning for, you know, A, B and C reason. And then they got big. I never had that experience. I was just always a big guy. So the, um, you know, it's, it's been one of those things where, you know, going to, you know, going through like elementary, junior high, I was a big kid. I got made fun of quite a bit, uh, which comes with the territory. You know, uh, everybody likes to point at the fat kid. 
and uh, make fun and, and say all sorts of uh, all sorts of things. And uh, you know, high school I was also pretty big, but I also shot up quite a few inches. I was you know pretty much short and fat up until about sophomore year. Then I shot up to about five ten, five eleven, and mm. it somewhat looked a little normal, but you know, weight still kept coming on. Um, and it pretty much just, it never fluctuated or went down from there. It's just, I've always been a big kid. And I tried all sorts of different things throughout youth. Um, you know, I, I tried the Slim Fast Diet. I tried Jenny Craig. Uh, when Atkins came out, I tried that. And, you know, then I tried just trying to eat healthy. But I had, you know, back then there was really not a huge knowledge base like there is now. There was no social media or online community that was able to help with anything. So it was pretty much just bad dieting and trying it on my own. Um, I don't know if you remember back in the days of Dexatrim. Oh, know? yeah. Yeah, that. Totally, oh, yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, I tried uh, Herbalife. I, I tried pretty much anything I could try. I tried Weight Watchers early on. I just couldn't ever stick to it. My, you know, my mom, my, my, my mom was pretty much the, the main person in my life. And she, she tried, she tried to help, but at the same time, you know, when you have a limited knowledge base of anything healthy as well, it, it makes it really difficult. You know, I come from a, a primarily Hispanic background where, you know, you really don't leave your table until you clean your plate. And so there's there's that whole, you know, mentality and stigma, you know, revolving around food. So from an early age, uh, food became pretty much a staple. It's not, it wasn't just fuel your body. It was for celebration, uh, for remorse, uh, for comfort, you know, for anything, whether it was a graduation, a funeral, a party, any, every, anything and everything revolved around food. And it had absolutely nothing to do with how healthy or unhealthy food was. It was just, did it taste good? And can you eat everything on your plate? Mm. So, you know, I want to say, I don't ever actually remember losing weight. Or trying to lose weight successfully until maybe 2013, 2014. Okay. So um, I had tried, you know, eating clean and eating healthy. But again, you know, there was just not enough knowledge base for me there. And what I was, what I thought I was doing instead of, uh, instead of helping was actually hindering me and I would end up gaining weight. Mm. Um, and and let's, let's give people some context. Uh, in what in 2013 how heavy were you at that point do you do you know what you weighed honestly i don't because um sometime around my early 20s i you know back then they didn't have you know back in like i want to say 2009 2010 they didn't have bariatric scales at most of the doctors that i went to they had to mm. scale and if you weighed more than 400 pounds you're out of luck so I would always tell them, oh, I'm 415, 420. In reality, I never knew until about 2013 uh, when I actually went to a Kaiser and they had a bariatric scale and I was in the neighborhood of the low 500s. And that mm. was coincidentally around the time that I found out that I was diagnosed with diabetes after a rather scary episode. Of oh, wow. Yeah. And what were you doing for what were you doing for work? Like just to, to let people know. Um, so I've been in the automotive industry for about 16 years. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I studied it when I was fresh out of high school. Uh, automotive repair, to be exact. So mm -hmm. 
by all purpose, for all purposes intended, I'm a mechanic. Um, we like to be called automotive technicians, but either which way, the the instinct is the same. We fix cars. So um, I've been doing that pretty much since high school. I dabbled a little bit here and there in office work, and it never really interested me. I've always been a more hands-on kind of guy. So um, I was at work one day. This must have been sometime around March or April of 2013, I want to say. And I started feeling really sick. And it was one of those, like, not a nauseated feeling, but it felt like, well, what I now know was a sudden loss in blood sugar and blood pressure. Um, very weak. I couldn't. I couldn't stand very well. I was very. I was more wheezy and breathy than usual, and I had to. I felt incredibly sleepy, and I had to go to sleep for a little while. I um, I found a, um, you know, an, a used vehicle that was. Uh, being reconditioned and uh, nobody was touching it at the moment and i literally laid in there for a few hours one of the guys came woke me up and goes hey you look really sick man i think you need to go to the hospital or something and uh so i did and they did a couple of uh, blood sugar tests and sure enough it was uh there was no mistaking it i was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and that's when i saw that i was in the low 500s i want to say about 525 520 So and, and what was what was that like for you, like to find out to see that number now, like after not really having known for a long time? It was it was I had a couple of different reactions to it. I was like, oh, wow, I had no idea. And then I started analyzing things and I'm like, well, it kind of makes sense. Um, I had noticed that I had been increasingly tired and less productive at work. I mean, being an automotive technician is a rather physical job. Oh, yeah. My feet were always hurting. I mean, just it didn't matter how good of a work boot I had, anything more than a few hours, I was my I was dead on my feet. And mm. you know, just things like it was a little difficult. Sometimes when you're when you're working on cars, you have to be able to bend and stoop, and you know, and getting back up started getting to be more difficult. But I, you know, it's um you had mentioned it in one of your podcasts uh, early on that as your body changes you kind of have this self-awareness where you start to adapt yourself. Right. So I couldn't tell you when it happened, but I started noticing things like I would put my pants on and then put my socks. I'm sorry. I would put my shoes and socks on and then put my pants on because mm. I could not put shoes and socks. On. Oh, sure. I, I used to do that myself. Yeah. So, you know, it's, you start noticing certain things like it was a little difficult to if I ever like had my feet on the floor for more than an hour and a half or two hours. If I was sitting on a couch, um, I would get really, really swollen feet and it'd be hard to put my shoes on. Mm. Um, I noticed that I would be a lot more tired and sleep a lot more. Um, I would get up constantly in the middle of the night to go to the restroom. So the symptoms were there and I just. You know, I kept looking at myself in the mirror and I was to a certain extent in denial, like, oh, you know, I'm okay. You know, my the last time I had blood work, which was a long, long time ago before I was diagnosed with diabetes, I was like, oh, my blood work came back great. I'm in good shape. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was in very, I was, you know, denial is not just a river in Egypt. I was in pretty serious denial about the state of affairs that, uh, that my body was in. And it wasn't until that particular moment that I noticed, you know, 
once I once I was aware of my weight and being a diabetic, um, it was it was a very big wake up call for me, and it was a little depressing at first. Um, I got I went through a couple of uh, job transitions, and it and it was one of those things where on paper I'm a very accomplished technician. When they meet and they see your weight, mm. completely different factor. Uh, whether they want to admit it or not, it pretty much makes it very difficult. Work and um, you know, so I started. Uh, you know, I I bounced around a little bit sometime around 2014 to 2015 between a couple of jobs, and then I uh, landed at my most recent former employer, and that's when things actually started uh, kind of turning towards you know nose diving towards rock bottom. Mm. It was also around that time that I had decided to quit smoking. Um, I had been a hard smoker for about 10 years. And the most recent, uh, when I quit smoking was around 2014. Okay. Uh, and I I took Chantix because nothing else seemed to work. And that effectively made me stop smoking. Um, but it also brought around a host of other things like increased appetite, horrible mood swings. Oh, and wow. I never really dealt with the uh, the issues head on, which were... I had an addictive personality, and so I what I did is I pretty much transferred addiction. I went from smoking cigarettes, which kind of helped curb the appetite and keep the weight at bay, believe it or not, to an extent, mm-hmm. to substituting for food and candy and anything else I can get my hands on. Um, I actually remember working. This was uh, around yeah around the same. I quit smoking. I I brought lunch work, my version of meal prepping, which. Uh, you can believe it. My version of meal prepping was uh, two ramen noodle packs with a bunch of like chicken and vegetables and stuff. And I put it on my toolbox and I was getting ready to eat lunch. And one of the guys made a, you know, a snide remark uh, to the extent of that looks like it could feed an entire country. Mm. And, you know, my first my first instinct was to go, you know, tell him to go, you know, screw himself. But Right, right. You know, at the same time, it was also it also brought forth some contemplation. Like that is a, that is quite a bit of food, but it's also what makes me feel full, and I feel better after eating it, or so I thought. Mm. So, um, it was it was one of those situations where not too long after that, because of you know the, the quitting smoking and increasing you know the food consumption to kind of balance that out, I ballooned up to about five hundred and seventy. And for my body, 570 pounds was where my body said, I cannot work on cars. Mm. And it was, um, it was a rather scary feeling because I remember exactly when I noticed it. I was bending down to um, position our so that we can lift it up in the air. And I could not get back up. Oh, wow. It was highly embarrassing and scary because as I put my knee, um, you know, up to try to lift myself back up, I realized that I couldn't and somebody was walking by and they looked at me like, are you okay? Do you need help? And I'm like, no, 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 I got it. I got it. And when they walked away, I'm looking around like, how am I going to get myself off the floor? Mm. 570 pounds, kind of a lot to just deadlift off the floor. Oh, yeah. Um, so I literally had to 
crawl about 10 feet to um, like this little area where there was like a, a workbench and pick myself back up. And even mm-hmm. at that, I struggled. And so my production at work was just super low. But because I had a way with uh, talking to customers and explaining repairs and things, uh, the manager that was there at the time, instead of saying, like, I got to get rid of this guy, he's not productive, um, transitioned me to the front desk. So I went from working on cars to becoming an assistant manager for an auto shop. Mm-hmm. And then uh, not too long after that, I took that shop over when he was transferred to a different, uh, different shop. And uh, it was both a blessing and a curse. For one, I didn't lose my job. For another, I went from a semi-active lifestyle, even though it was incredibly difficult, to full-on sedentary. Oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah, it was, and it was a, it was a thing where I couldn't really, um, I couldn't really do anything. Like walking from my desk, which I very seldomly left my chair, um, outside to get some information from a customer's vehicle was the most daunting task ever because i'd have to actually walk and it was at that time that i was like you know i really need to consider weight loss surgery because nothing else that i've tried seems to help i would lose maybe 10 to 20 pounds by attempting to eat clean um but i for you know a b or c reason couldn't really stick with it and i would in my in my feelings i would plateau and um it just it wasn't moving fast enough to be able to be effective for me. Um, not because of anything aside from the fact that I felt like I was kind of running out of time. I was also at that time diagnosed with sleep apnea, mm. and I noticed it because it was one of those things where I was feeling even more tired. Which I mean, at five hundred and seventy pounds, you're tired all the time. Oh yeah, but I noticed like I couldn't sleep well. I started noticing that when I was laying on the bed felt like I was gasping for air. Like I would wake up every few minutes to maybe like almost every hour sweating and feeling like I was being choked. So I went in um, to uh, sleep data and they did uh, a sleep study on me. And they called me within 20 minutes of receiving the results. And they're like, you need to come in right now. Oh, wow. I'm at work. I'll be there in a few hours. They're like, no, 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 no. You need to come in right now. Like, you cannot go home and go to sleep. You may not wake up. Mm-hmm. It was bad. So apparently on average, you know, if somebody with mild obstructive sleep apnea stops breathing maybe once every 20 or 30 minutes um, for a few seconds. I stopped breathing every 10 minutes, for 10 to 20 seconds. Oh, wow. It was enough for them to be like, you need to come in right now. Um, and they gave me a CPAP machine and it somewhat helped. But from that point forward, I was sleeping on a couch. Yeah. Because I, I couldn't be laying flat. It was, uh, it didn't, uh, didn't work well. So there was that, um, coupled with, you know, the sedentary life and just really, really horrible choices of eating. I was like, you know what? I need to do something about this. So I started trying to look into weight loss surgery around late 2015, early 2016. Okay with a doctor who was within my HMO plan. And he took a look and said, okay, you're 570 pounds. I, I was able to maintain at that point, which I suppose was a good thing. 
And he said, uh, you know, we need to get you down to low 500s, possibly even 500 even, and then we'll see where we are and see if we can do the surgery. So I went for it. I started, uh, you know, looking into meal prepping and uh, I cut out, I did a lot of basics. I cut out sweets, I cut out sugar, I cut out soda, um, you know, which even even with diabetes, I still drink regular soda. Um, not be, not for the same reasons as you because of the aspartamine, but because I hated the taste of diet. Ah. Mm-hmm. And I love carbonation. I love the bite. So at that point in time, you know, water was a very foreign concept. I only drank it if my kidneys started hurting because I was like, oh, oh wow, I should probably drink some water then. Um, but my excuse was pretty much basic. Well, like soda has carbonated water. It's still water. You know, very, it was a very ignorant way to think uh, back mm. then. Um, very much in denial. So I quit soda, which was incredibly difficult, but I still bought carbonated flavored water that didn't have any sugar. So not the best substitute, but an acceptable substitute given the circumstance. Um, right. You know, I started uh, meal prepping more food and eating at home. Uh, I pretty much quit fried food. And I was able to successfully lose within a few months, I think about three or four months, I managed to lose 50 to 60 pounds. I got down to 520. Mm. And uh, the surgeon said, uh, yeah, you know, uh, lose 20 more pounds and we should be good. And I don't know why in my head I was thinking like, you know how hard it was for me to lose 50? You want me to lose 20 more? And I got disturbed. Right. Mm. So, you know, I, I kind of just let it fall by the wayside and ballooned back up. Um, I gained it back and then an additional 10 pounds. I was at 580. And I went back and I was like, hey, we need, can we try this again? And he said, sure, let's try this again. So I went through all the processes again, all the blood work, the medical clearance, cardiac clearance, everything. And I got down to 510. And I remember going into one of the last uh, pre-op checks and he was like, yeah, you know, he's like, you're doing good. And I was like, yeah, 10 more pounds, right? And then we'll be there. And he goes, well. And at that moment, I was like, don't you Mm. welcome. Don't you welcome. Well, you said 500. And he goes, well, we may need to get you down to 450, maybe even lower than that, you know, because I'm going to really have to be in there. It's a lot of mass. You know, you're still pretty heavy. The table, was, he started just enumerating excuses. My world shattered. Oh, wow. That was the beginning of the downward spiral into what I consider my rock. I, I left that appointment and pretty much repeated every expletive under the sun and then immediately proceeded to just cry mm. because it was so frustrating to have gone through that twice. The first time I understand that I got discouraged and I let it go, but this time I was motivated. I was pushing and it was a lot of effort to lose, you know, 60 to 70 pounds in those like six months. Right. It took a lot. And so my, my reasoning was, you know, if I could get down to 450 and 400 pounds on my own, I don't really think I would need the surgery at that point. I would just keep going. So I um, I gave up. I started eating bad food again, and it actually went the opposite. I started not just eating bad food, but consuming more throughout each meal. Mm. When you were talking in one of your podcasts about, uh, you know, going comatose after eating, like, eating oh, yeah. meals. That was me on a daily basis. 
So what my habits were, I would dive in, I would dive myself hard into work. So I would go to, I would go to work. I would eat a couple of, you know, maybe like two or three sausage egg McMuffins with some hash browns and a fry or uh, a soda and, uh, and an apple pie. And I was like, yeah, that's a good breakfast. I didn't really do lunch, you know, uh, cause it was like so busy at work. And then at dinner, my, uh, my poison of choice was Chinese. Mm-hmm. Chinese food is without the, without a doubt, the most single-handedly deadly trigger. <laughs> cannot be near it. Sure. It's, it's one of those things that it will break. Maybe not so much now, but at that moment in time, I had zero resistance to it. Mm. It started out small. It was, uh, you know, oh, I'll get a two-item combo. Oh, but I want egg roll. Then it was like, oh, I'll get a three-item combo with egg roll. Uh, you know, one thing led to another, and it was a three-item combo, egg rolls, pan-fried dumplings, soup, a drink. I would eat all of that, food coma baby style, and then I would eat my family when they were asleep. So, yeah, it was, there was zero restriction there, zero accountability for food. And that's um, pretty much when, and I, I had no idea what I weighed because I didn't have a scale at home and I pretty much stopped going to the doctor. Um, this was probably around late 2017 early 2018 and I knew I was heavier because I could feel it felt worse walking anywhere like walking from my car to the apartment was the most daunting mm. outgrew my car um, to the point where I had to buy a bigger vehicle right I literally remember um, being stuck in my car one day and not able to get out like I literally had to like almost dislocate a hip to get out of my mm. car and I was like, okay, well, it's time for a bigger car. And I know that know, I know that feeling well. I know that 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 mindset well. You know, you don't think let's change something else. Like you think let's change the car. Exactly. Yeah. It's like no, 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 the car, not me. No. Right. You know? I can't tell you. And even before then, even you know, throughout you know my younger years, I can't tell you how many car seats I broke. You know, it. You know, because it's not just sliding into the car and you're adjusted and that's fine. You know, sliding in, you kind of have to adjust the hip area and the uh, crotch area. And of course, you're leaning back on the seat. And next thing you know, seat folds all the way back, you know? Mm. So, so, I mean, you know, it was things like that. And, you know, I'm, I'm anybody who ever checks out my social media profile um, will see a highlighted story uh, that talks about that experience where that was me pretty much hitting rock bottom. But instead of hitting rock bottom and saying, well, the only place I can go is up, it was pretty much me hitting rock bottom and saying, I think this is where I'm going to Right. So I remember we went to the Grand Canyon, uh, my family and I, and I was walking around. <laughs> walking around by that, I mean, I literally walked from like, my car to like the restroom and back and I felt like I was gonna die. Right. This is and, and you know what's worse is I blamed it on the air. I was like, oh, the air's really thin up here. It's probably why I can't breathe. I'm like, no, you can't breathe because you're over six hundred pounds. Mm. So I mean everything was daunting when you're that weight. It's just there's so many things that become an obstacle from walking to hotels to, you know, going up a set of stairs, everything. And you know, that's how I plan my life. What are we doing? Where are we going? I, how far is the walk? The parking? 
how are the seats, you know. It was just there was so there was so much logistical concern when it came to going and doing anything. And the particular story that I had in mind about uh, when I hit rock bottom and started, uh, you know, just accepting my fate, I was at the beach. Um, family wanted to go, and uh, I walked. And mind you, this was not a far walk. The, there was like a there was like a boardwalk where there was like a stone wall. It was a very short wall, but you know you could sit on it. And I walked from that wall through the sand onto the beach where it was hard packed and you know the water was hitting. And by the time I got there, I was so out of breath I did not know that I could make it back. Mm. But I was heavy that I knew that if I sat down, I definitely wasn't getting back up. So I'm sitting. I'm I'm standing there hunched over trying to clutch clutch myself onto something because the weight is just shifting forward so badly. My back is killing me. My head is pounding. I'm sweating. I mean, I am sweating profusely. And <clears throat> the part that got me the most, my daughter comes up and she's having fun and then she gets really serious. And uh, she must have seen the look on my face. And she goes, Daddy, are you okay? She's four. Hmm. I mean, like, Daddy, are you okay? So I have to try to play it off. Like, no, no, baby, Daddy's fine. Daddy's fine. He's just tired. And she's like, Daddy, you look sad. Oh, that. Oh, wow. I was like, no, baby, Daddy's fine. Here, go go play. And so I'm like, I have to walk back this stone wall because if I don't right now, I'm going to collapse right here. And I, the first thing I was picturing was, like, like the whole ordeal of having to get somebody to help me get there. And, uh, I walked back, and that short walk, I could, it couldn't have been more than 250 And that whole walk, which seemed to take forever, I paused three times to catch my breath. And people were looking, staring, and like, oh my god, is this guy okay? You know. And I got back to that stone slab, my head was pounding so hard, I literally felt like my brain was going to just pop out of me. And I sat on that wall. And I watched my daughter play in the distance. And something in my head goes, you're missing all of this. Mm. There to enjoy it. And I broke down. Like, badly. I didn't care who was watching. I cried like you would not believe. And, you know, whereas most people would have had a moment and said, like, I can't do this anymore. I have to change. In my mind, it was like, this is hopeless. I'm never going to be healthy. I'm never going to be at a point in time where I can enjoy these things. I might as well just accept it. That was on a Saturday. On Monday when I went back to work, I checked out my open enrollment and I upped my life insurance. Mm-hmm. It would let me offer without evidence of insurability. Right. <laughs> um, I contacted a local um, criminal parlor and I made an appointment to go in, and I actually went and set up a plan for cremation services and you know uh, disposals and things because the last thing I wanted was to be burdened to my family because I just I grew to accept it. I was like, you know what? There's gonna be a day where I'm just I'm not gonna. Work. And at that point, I will stop being a burden to everybody around me, and uh, I want to make sure that least they're taken care of in the sense of 
financial aspects and they, did, they don't have to worry about any funeral expenses. Um, I actually sent an email to my family saying, listen, I'm not trying to be morbid or freak anybody out, but, you know, you know, nothing in life is ever certain. I want to make sure that you guys have my wishes very well documented, if anything happens to me. And I mean, I was detailed. This was like a four-page email with... Oh, yeah. Funeral proceedings, color of flowers, my best picture, what urn I wanted, everything. I mean, it was, it was like I was getting ready to die. And that's what it was. I felt like, you know what, this is, this is probably better for everybody involved. And I don't exactly remember how it came to be. One of my friends found out um, how I was feeling. It may have been something I posted on social media to a group of my mechanic buddies. Um, and it was something along the lines of, hey, you know, in case anything ever happens to me, I wanted you guys to know how much I love you, each and every one of you, and that it's been great for your family. Not even 30 seconds after posting that, I get a call from one of my friends in Virginia. He goes, I don't know what's going on with you, but we've already lost two friends to suicide. This is not happening. You need to get help. Mm. So, um, and I get several more phone calls from friends and family and discussions with family. And they're like, you need to get help. This is not healthy. Forget about the physical aspect. Your mindset right now is like you're waiting to die. And it was true. I didn't, every night I went to sleep or attempted to sleep, you know, I felt my breath slow down and I would just wonder, is it, is this, is tonight the night? You know, and it's and, not like, and- I'm, go ahead. No, I, I was going to say, like, I, I, I want to, I want to, you know, I, I think people listening are, you've been detailing the progression that you went through. And I, I think the important thing that people need to see in all of this was that you were in the middle, you were in a crisis that just continued to increase. It wasn't like you were having a vanity issue or, you know, wanted to be able to play a sport that you used to play or, get back into shape or things along those lines, you were realizing that the way you were living wasn't going to keep going. And, and I know, I know for me what that acceptance point was like, like when you sent that email to your family and when you made that post to your friends, what was going through your head? It was, um, you're absolutely right. It wasn't like, uh, you know, it wasn't an attention thing. It wasn't, uh, you know, I, I wasn't being vain or like, oh, my world's ending because I can't play football anymore, which I did in high school. Um, and it's not like it, it is exactly not like that. I, I, I wasn't like, oh, I really want to do this. I really, it was it was an acceptance of the fact that it's like, you know, my life is never going to be what I expected it to be. What I was what was going through my head when I sent that email was I don't want to be a burden. To you. Mm. I've come to accept that my life is not going to change. I'm always going to be this big guy and I may effectively not live this important. I honestly didn't even know if I'd live 35. Um, and I didn't want it to catch anybody off guard or, um, you know, for everybody to be like, oh, great. I, basically, I didn't want to feel like a burden. So I didn't right. want, like, uh, you know, oh, he died. And now we're stuck with not only the fact that he's not here, but all this insurmountable, you know, pressure of, you know, services and this and that. 
And, you know, I wanted my friends to know, like, in case I never got to tell them that I really value their friendship. You know, because sometimes you feel like, you know, those things may be taken for granted. And in case I never expressed it enough and I never, you know, so it was, uh, it was a feeling of, you know, gratitude for the people I had in my life that I wanted them to know just in case, you know, the next day I didn't wake up. It was, it wasn't, mm. a, it wasn't a plea for attention. It wasn't a, you know, Hey, pay attention to me. I'm having drama. thing. it was more like, you know, thank you guys for being here. right. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like I was intentionally like saying like, I'm going to, you know, do something to myself. This was just like, Hey, just in case you never know, I wanted you guys to know about. So, yeah, it was, uh, I was definitely going through a crisis in the sense that, you know, I felt like, you know, everything around me was crashing in, in, in that sense, in the sense of not being able to, um, fix what was going on. And I felt stuck. Like, I don't know how to overcome this issue. I don't know that I can. Because at that point, I had felt surgery wasn't an option, um, because of what the surgeon said. Right. And, I didn't know of any other way. I was entirely too big to do anything about it um, in my in my mind. And right. I I didn't feel like I had any other recourse. So when, uh, you know, when everybody, it wasn't like an intervention, but I got a lot of support from people who rallied behind me and were just like, you need to get help. I don't care how, I don't care what you have to do. You need to live. You need to do something. And so I got the suggestion, like, hey, why don't you talk to your therapist, the one that gave you the medical clearance twice to get the surgery? And that never really dawned on me because when I went through medical clearance, I pretty much played them twice. I told them right. exactly. Oh, sure. You know, to give me the medical clearance. Oh, yeah, I got a support system at home. Oh, yeah, no, I know all about. I boned up on that surgery like you wouldn't believe. I knew the ins and outs, the processes and procedures. Um, But I knew just enough to tell them what they needed to hear so that they'd be like, oh, no, this guy's ready. He's fine. Mm. They pushed it right through. So, you know, I, I reached out and uh, and got help and started the process. Um, before surgery even came back into the picture, I started the process on my mental health, mm. which up until then, I had no idea was even a factor or a problem. So that was also a pretty big wake up call as far as, you know, there's a reason you got this big, you know, it's not just because you like food or because your body has, you know, a metabolic issue. Um, my body's never had a metabolic issue. So as much as I would love to blame it on that, that's right. definitely not a fact. Um, it was just poor eating choices. Um, but it, not just the eating choices, but also the reasoning behind it. Mm-hmm. And that process took a long time to recognize factors that attributed to that, as well as decisions that I made regarding food and my choices revolving, you know, around that aspect of life. So surgery actually didn't come into the picture. I started seeing a therapist, uh, I want to say, late March, early April of 2000. Mm-hmm. 
Theory didn't even come into the picture until about um, and throughout that time, that's when I found out how much I weighed. 611 pounds. Mm. At, the, at the scale of the surgeon's office. Because this, again, was before I even had bothered to pick up a scale. Actually, no, not the surgeon's office. I apologize. The therapist's office has a bariatric scale there. So, 611 pounds. And that number was daunting to me because this wasn't 500, this wasn't 400, this was my 600 pound life. Oh, yeah. I was just completely thrown back by that because I was like, that is really big. That's, that's the equivalent of three very, you know, relatively tall and healthy, stocky people. <laughs> mm. So, you know, that number really, you know, and at that, at that point, you know, 600 pounds, I mean, even at 500 and change, Life was difficult. Walking, doing anything, showering, using the restroom, everything was a daunting task. So, you know, it was um it was quite the ordeal to take a shower, to find clothing. Um, you had mentioned in one of your podcasts what it feels like to outgrow DXL or big and tall as they were. Yep. Oh yeah. Yeah, I had to end up using King Size Direct because mm-hmm. When even casual male goes, we don't have your size. Right. No, that's bad. I mean, that's, you know, so my life pretty much revolved around shorts, sweats, and flip flops. Nothing else really ever fit. And shirts. You know. And, and, you, and you and I both know when you're shopping exclusively, like for those who don't know, King Size Direct is an online retailer for big and tall clothing. And they probably carry, they're the most mass marketed. That carries above a 6XL. I think they have some clothing that goes to a 10X or even a 12. And what's the quality of that clothing like? Like the, their stuff is, I feel like it's made out of like remnants of fabric that you wouldn't even use for like a tablecloth. Like uh, you, pay, you pay so much money for a pair of shorts or a t-shirt and you get it and you're like, what on earth is this even made of? Yeah, it, it was really, it was really not very good quality and ridiculously overpriced. I mean, to pay, to pay almost $90 for a pair of pants mm-hmm. and then, you know, 45 to $50 for a shirt. I mean, it's ridiculous. People will go shopping for, with 400 bucks and come back with full wardrobe. And I'd be like, yeah, that's like four items. Mm. And yeah, the quality wasn't very good. So I very, I seldomly wore, I pretty much wore it if I had to go somewhere where I needed to look at them. Um, it was just, it was very overpriced, not very good quality. And I mean, it took, you never really knew how it was going to fit because as you and I both know, 6X isn't always a 6X, 8X right. is not always an 8X. You know, it depends on the person and how it fits them. And shirt wise, you know, it always either fit like a tablecloth or it, you know, fit way too tight. Pants were difficult because lower body is different for everybody. So, oh, yeah. My waist size, the biggest I could remember was a 72 and being tight. Mm. You know, um, I had, I had a belt. I actually still have it. I still have the belt and the pants that were 72. Um, and I mean, that belt, like I had to really try to suck in my stomach to get it to that first knot. Mm. There was a point in time where I stopped wearing the belt because I was like, you know what? These pants have drawstring and they're slacks. So I'll just. 
And and I think you I I don't want to detract you know take us on too much of a tangent, but I think you hit on something that people don't think about when you're that large, when you're over four hundred, five hundred, six hundred pounds, our bodies all don't develop the same. We don't carry the weight the same. We don't. It, none of it is exactly the same. So, clothing manufacturers are basing like they basically take like a, a probably a digital model of of a of a mannequin. And just keep increasing the dimensions, yeah, and they don't much. think about they don't think about the physical change, like how much weight you can carry in your stomach and your thighs or your behind, depending on how your body's built, your hips. Like I see, I see guys like what because I wasn't as heavy as you were, and at my biggest, you know, I my around the middle, I was eighty four inches. Like I, you know, we all carry our weight very differently, and. Okay, everybody, we're back. A little bit of a technical difficulty, but we're good. I'm here with my friend Carlos, and we're talking, like, we had gotten to the point in Carlos's story where we had been talking about what it's like when you, you outgrow the big and tall stores, the DXL, and you're shopping at King Size Direct only, and started to get into a little bit about how the physicality changes. The bigger you get, you don't just become, it's, it's not like you look at, like, a superhero who gets bigger and the muscles and everything grows proportionately. Like, the body shifts and changes. And clothing manufacturers don't necessarily think about that. So it's definitely one of those challenges that I don't think a lot of people think about when you're that big. Like, they, it's easy to think about chairs fitting with, you know, chairs with arms and getting in cars and things like that. But finding, a, like, I know for me, like, one of the things we started to talk about, Carlos, was my waist was... I was a little bit lighter than you were at my heaviest and my waist was bigger. And so that also probably meant that my legs were smaller than your legs. So I could wear pants that fit my waist, but they would look like I was wearing, you know, like a woman's skirt or a dress because they just draped my legs so much. So it's, it's fascinating to me to think about, you know, the, our unique experience, you know, we all have similarities. Like there's so much of your story that resonates with me, but then we have different pieces where things branch out in different directions. And, one of the different directions that you would start to talk about was after people told you, you know, begged with you and, and came to you and said, you need to get some help, man. You started finally reaching out and talking to the counselor involved with the, bari the bariatric process. And you highlighted that it was finally because one of the one of the facets of your story that I think is similar in a, in a lot of ways to mine is that living in that strong sense of denial and building your normal around things that the average person might look at from the outside and see as completely wild. But we built that as our normal. We built it as, as our, our everyday life. You know, the barely able to walk to the car, the not fitting into cars, all of those things become normal. And you finally started exploring what was going on for you emotionally and physically. But can you take us into what was going on for you working with that counselor? What, what, what doors started opening for you that, that, April, that, that March, April of 2018? Are you there? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? You weren't coming through at all. Can you hear you. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. I can hear you now. Sorry about that. Huh. So That's... I um I sent her an email and uh, let her know that uh, I I needed to come in and see her. Um, she sent me an email back with a link to uh, make an appointment, 
and I promptly emailed her back and let her know that I, I, this really can't wait. It's pretty, it's pretty serious. So she cleared out her schedule. Um, mm. I met with her on a Monday and we began talking about what I was feeling. Um, how I had just feeling like I was, uh, I'd given up. There was, uh, there was nothing that I could do to change my situation and that I felt like I was stuck and hopeless and I, I couldn't control my eating habits anymore. And I didn't really have the desire to do so. Um, she was very attentive to my needs. Um, at no point in time did she, um, uh, try to assign blame or, uh, you know, start suggesting the weight loss surgery again because she realized that I needed to mentally take hold of what was going on and change, um, my, my patterns and my behaviors, but not, not just change them because it's necessary, but acknowledge how I got there and what led to the path that I was on and how to change. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, we met once a week, uh, very religiously, uh, without fail. Uh, if I couldn't get to her, she couldn't get to me, then we would do a teleconference. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, we started diving into things about my past, you know, uh, how I coped with uh, personal loss, with family trouble, uh, how I coped with uh, things in my childhood. And um, she touched on something that's really it's really important. And I've been working on ever since is sitting with feeling Um, Mm. a lot of the times we go through problems in life um, and you can enumerate whichever problem you want to associate it with. And instead of sitting with the feeling and acknowledging that it feels really bad and it hurts or makes you angry or makes you sad or makes you want to cry, um, we find some kind of, uh, of a compensator for it, whether it's food or shopping or alcohol or insert, you know, thing here to cope. Right. We, we use it. We use something as a coping mechanism. Um, and so it's very much an addiction. And that's a huge uh, controversy. You know, some people don't see food addiction as an actual disease. And some people do. Um, so there was a, there was a, lot, of, uh, a lot of process involved in, in isolating why I would turn to food. And the bottom line was this. Food never left me. Food mm. never judged me. Food never made me feel bad about things. Food was a comfort in every way possible. Um, and it would feel legitimately making me feel better. Um, if I was going through something stressful at work or problems at home or any particular, you know, uh, emotion, you know, or if I was just feeling happy, you know, or feeling good about something that happened in life, uh, a celebration of, of some type, food was there. Food was used for joy as well as for sorrow. Mm. So it made me feel better. So I would turn to that instead of finding a more uh, healthy or approachable outlet. Or sometimes, like like she said, just sitting with your feelings. You're allowed to feel things. Whether they feel good or bad, you, you have to deal with them head on. And so that wasn't an easy conclusion to come to. Uh, there was a lot of work that came into uh, to play there with uh, accountability, uh, with you know, documenting um, what I was feeling. So like a lot of times I would carry a little notepad with me, which was an assignment she gave me. She goes, when you feel upset or when you feel like you're hungry, 
start jotting things down. Like, and I would, and I, I felt like that was the dumbest thing. Like, why? What do you mean jotting things down? And she's like, well, start jotting down what you're feeling at the moment. Like, how are you feeling? Are you feeling bored? Are you feeling tired? Are you feeling hungry? Are you legitimately hungry? Like, are you stressed? Are you upset? Are you happy? And start writing down what you're feeling and why that's driving you to food, you know? So that was probably the hardest thing for me to do is not just, not necessarily acknowledge my role in the situation. That was actually a little bit easy to acknowledge. My, my, the difficult part came in acknowledging the denial mm. and acknowledging feeling. Um, we're guys, we have a propensity to not want to share things. Right. Um, I'm not, I'm not particularly fond of, you know, talking to my own family about things, let alone talking to a you know, person that I have to pay. So, you know, it's a, it's a little difficult there. Uh, oh, for sure. And I think that's, I, I think, you know, I, I don't want to interrupt your story. Like I want to say though, I think it's admirable. Like you were at a rock bottom place. Like you had found out you were 600 pounds. You would, you would, you were preparing your, your family and friends for your death. And you somehow found it within yourself though, to reach out again. And not only reach out again, but you went to a counselor that you had not been 100% truthful with before and decided to open up and, and take a risk. And I, I think that's admirable, man. I, I, I think that shows that's something that I think a lot of men listening need to hear that, you know, sometimes, yes, sharing like that cannot be comfortable, but it can be really important. So I, I just really I think that that's inspiring that you did that, man. So. No, I, I, I'm not trying to de- like I don't want to I don't want to completely derail what you're saying, but I wanted to to start for a second and acknowledge the power in what you did. Like as much as you you're, you're taking other powerful steps to change your life like that right there, like even getting into that exercise of recording your emotions and your feelings is something so antithetical to how men are traditionally told to be that it's it, it's great to hear that you you put yourself into it and then realize wow, this, this is something that actually is going to be a part of helping my process. No, I, I absolutely agree. It, was, um, it wasn't an easy step. Um, you, you, you're kind of forced to face you know, things inside that you really don't want to. Mm. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't a very uh, easy time, um, but it was very necessary. And I, I can honestly tell you, um, as counterproductive as this may seem, I'm. If I would have had the surgery before acknowledging these issues, I don't think that the results would have been the same. Mm. Because I don't think I was mentally ready um, to to tackle the underlying issue. You don't. You don't get to be six hundred and something pounds um, by being okay. Right. There are underlying issues. Um, that may not be the case for everybody, but I mean, when you've been a heavy set person your entire life, and then you just balloon out of no—not out of nowhere—but it it gets increasingly worse. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's something underlying there that's feeding that, and if you don't tackle it, then even though the surgery itself, you know, is a huge tool, it won't be anywhere near as successful if you don't. Uh, establish some cognitive behavioral patterns mm. to enable the success there. So sure. as difficult as that was, it was a very important step for me because it 
it was a very difficult thing to do in the beginning. And sometimes I would just kind of pencil whip it. But she could tell. She's like, you're not really expressing what you're feeling. You know, and and so it, it really did force me to kind of just face it head on. And, you know, I discovered quite a few things that, uh, you know, for one, the easiest thing to do when you have, uh, you know, uh, an, an emotional issue or a, a mental issue or even a physical issue, you know, cause there were times where I, I would end up in the hospital for either an abscess or some kind of an issue with uh, my feet or a leg issue, you know, things that are kind of associated to being a heavy set person. Mm -hmm. um, you kind of end up in the hospital a lot for all sorts of different uh, problems. And uh, physical pain immediately brought on a sense of, I need, I need food. Mm. I'm not feeling well. I need food to make me feel better. And she would tackle that question all the time. Why? Why does food make you feel better when you're hurting? Is it a comfort? And my answer was always, yeah, it made me feel better. Nothing felt better than, you know, diving face first into a plate of Chinese food when I was feeling not well mm -hmm. or feeling physical. And so she taught me how to acknowledge the feeling of that and sit with it and then move on and find a healthier outlet for it. Um, the other thing, and this was kind of also mind blowing to me was a lot of the times your body, your subconscious uh, or your mind will interpret a problem as being hungry. Mm. Because I would tell her, like, oh, I was legitimately hungry. So we established the difference between physical hunger and the manifestations that come with that or psychological hunger. Mm. That's really important. And I cannot even begin to tell you how utterly mind-blowing that was. Because that was, again, part of the denial. Like, well, I feel like eating 10 pounds of Chinese food because I'm hungry. Are you really, though? So mm. one of the biggest questions, um, which which is what I like to call the um, the broiled chicken breast theory, mm -hmm. is you know if you're really hungry enough, and this was this was again something that I even use now. I'm, I haven't seen her in a few months, and I still use this to this day. If I'm even thinking of hunger, well, especially back then, am I hungry? I feel hungry. Well, what are you doing in that very moment that triggered the hunger? Are you, am I watching TV? Am I going through something stressful? If I'm truly hungry, I would go through the checklist. You know, do I feel a hunger pain? Am I starting to salivate or feel a little nauseous? Um, am I going through a bit of a mood swing? Does a piece of dry chicken breast sound good right now? Mm. If the answer was no to any of that, then it's not physical hunger. It's more of a psychological issue. And I had to address what was going on at that time, jot it down. And we would go over it. And although the process was not easy, uh, it really did reveal quite a bit of how my body was trying to interpret, or my mind rather, was trying to interpret um, some other issue or physical hunger manifestation. Mm. Um, another one that was also mind-blowing to me was uh, sleep. <laughs> You'd be surprised how much sleep plays into that factor as well. And I mean, everybody knows the general thing, you know, you should get at least eight hours of sleep. It's good for your health, digestion. It's good for, you know, uh, muscle building if you work out. Um, but when you're tired, your mind can also translate that into hunger. Mm -hmm. So Very I would have true. to look at, you know, it's 
12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning, something sounds, you know, food sounds good right now. Well, why? Because it's 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning and maybe your mind is being triggered saying, I'm hungry? Are you really hungry or are you tired? And so I couldn't tell you specifically when the turning point was for um, the mindset change, or but it was very gradual. It's, you don't just turn over a new leaf like that. Um, it was right. very gradual, but it was extremely helpful. Mm. I mean, I, again, I have to reiterate the fact that I honestly don't think that my journey would be the same, anywhere near the same, had I not received the help that I did from uh, my therapist. And I mean, it wasn't just one-on-one sessions. It was uh, group therapy sessions. It was cognitive behavioral therapy. It was group exercises. Uh, it just it all had a very positive impact, despite the stigma of therapy, despite the feeling of not wanting to share things. Um, I can honestly say that that really paved the way and laid and led the foundation for being ready, not just physically but mentally for the surgery. That makes a lot of sense, man. Like, and, and I think there's such a measured strong approach there in terms of you being thoughtful, like building this thoughtfulness into your process that I'm sure played out in other parts of your life. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's definitely something that I put into practice as much now as I did then. And I mean, mind you, we're talking about a year out, but, right. um, it's very critical. It's a very critical fact. It's, it's, it's so important that I actually do it now subconsciously without even thinking about it. You know, everybody well, that... thinks that, say again? Oh, no, no, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, 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 you're good. Um, you know, everybody thinks that, you know, this, you know, having surgery like this is, um, I don't want to say a cure, but that you're not going to go through as much struggle as if you lose the weight naturally. Um, and, and I want to dive into I want to dive into your your actual surgery and all of that, but let's let's not jump ahead, uh, okay, into that yet because I I I let's talk now like let's segue because you're you're in this place where you're you're working you're working with the counselor and how did surgery come back into play like when did that come back into your your thoughts and planning and and when was the decision made uh, that that was going to definitely be happening for you? I want to say that was sometime around early June. Um... I had I had told her about the experience I had with that surgeon, and she herself agreed that that wasn't a very um, realistic expectation from the surgeon at that point. And she, it was so casual to her to, to mention it. She was like, "Well, have you thought about looking at other surgeons?" And I cannot honestly tell you why. Mm. Um, maybe it was because of the plan that I had at that at that point in time in my life with uh, with regards to insurance. I never thought to look into another surgeon that did it. I, I always assumed, okay, this is the surgeon that my, that my insurance company will approve, and he's not willing to do it. Mm. Um, so I, she had my same insurance information because obviously I had used her before. So she's like, well, let me do some digging and see what I can find out. And we met up the following week, and she gave me a list of about 12 surgeons that would be willing to uh, – that would uh, that would be within my network. Oh wow! So I was, in, and but even at that, I was extremely skeptical. I was like, okay, well, 
maybe once they see me, they may sing a different tune. Right. So I started calling. I went down the list. Um, and, you know, about three or four in, it's like, no, yeah, you have to be at least, you know, you have to be a maximum of 450. You have to be a mm-hmm. maximum of 455. You have to be a maximum of this. And so I was, you know, slowly starting to get discouraged. And then I hit number five on the list. It was Dr. Sunil Boyrol, uh here in San Diego. And I mentioned specifically because I've dealt with quite a few doctors. And unfortunately, I've dealt with more than my fair share of surgeons. Um, granted, not bariatric surgeons, but surgeons nonetheless. Surgeons are not very social people from what I've, mm. from what I've known. They're, oh, they're, sure. They're, they're good at their job, but they're, they don't like talking to you. Um, so I call and I talk to the uh, receptionist. And the first, I at that point, I was on number five on the list. I had very little patience. Oh, yeah. So I was just like, listen, I just need to know flat out right now, what's the heaviest that you can do the surgery? Because I'm getting kind of tired of calling everybody and then telling me that I'm still too heavy. They can't do the surgery. Right. So she puts me on hold. Ten minutes later, gets back to me. She's like, well, I just talked to our nurse practitioner. And she says that uh, your weight should be fine. Because I told her, I'm like, I'm 600 pounds. And uh, they're like, well, that shouldn't be a problem. So I scheduled a consultation. And it was it was both like I was both extremely skeptical and at the same time really shocked. Because mm. usually in a consultation, you meet with a nurse practitioner, maybe the surgeon. Uh, the very first person I met with was Dr. Boyrell. Oh, wow. And he comes in. He looks at my information. Um, I stand up naturally, or I try to stand up as best I can to uh, shake his hand. I'm reaching out for my, well, you know, with my hand to shake it, and he gives me a hug. And I was like, "This is strange. I've yeah, never oh, yeah. hugged anybody <laughs> in the medical field whatsoever." So I give him like the most awkward hug in the world, and I look at him, and he looks at me, and he's like, "Thank you." I'm like, "Thank you. I have not done anything." I mean. Mm. What are you, what are you thanking me for? He's like, well, thank you for trusting me. He's like, this is a very important time in your life. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for you and your family for trusting me for this process in this part of your journey. And I was like, wow, that's extremely nice. Uh, maybe he hasn't read my weight yet. <laughs> so he looks at my weight and he goes, you're a pretty big guy. He goes, let's check you out. So he's checking the abdomen. He's checking my liver. Which is ev- which is something that happens at every consultation, right? And then he, uh, you know, he had me tell some of the backstory, and I told him about the previous surgeon. And he looks at me and he goes, "Well, that's stupid. If you could do that on your own, you wouldn't need the surgery." And I'm looking at him like, "Thank you." He gets it. So, so he tells me he's like, "Look, I'm not going to dangle a carrot in front of you, right? But I can't do the surgery at 611 pounds." Because if you can get down to 550 and give me an honest effort, I will do the surgery at 550. So, still, again, very skeptical because I just I wasn't that trusting with it because this is something I've wanted for so long. Mm. And, and and you know what? Maybe want isn't the right word. Um, I did want it, but it was more of a necessity at this point. This wasn't uh, this wasn't a, I want to lose, you know, a couple pounds here, and this is the the, the easiest, fastest way to get it. This was. This was literally life and death for me. I, I right. needed the surgery to live. Um, and, I, and because of that, I didn't want to get my hopes up. 
because I can't even begin to tell you the amount of nightmares that I had prior to this, you know, feeling like, you know, like nightmares in the sense that I dreamt that I actually had the surgery. And then I would wake up and be entombed in this 600 pound body and be like, nope, that didn't actually happen. That was just a dream. Mm. So I, uh, I went back to my uh, therapist and I let her know what he said. And she was genuinely excited. And I'm like, well, yeah, but, you know, we'll see what happens. So she was like, you need to allow yourself to be happy and mm. allow yourself to experience this joy. Because two weeks ago, you still felt like there was no hope. And now look where we are. And sure enough, I, with her help, started, um, because it wasn't just a mental acceptance of the issues. She also taught me cognitive behavioral therapy from uh, documenting what I'm eating, um, not not just calorie counting, but looking at all the macronutrients and um, holding myself accountable, keeping a thorough journal of anything I consumed or anything I was feeling when I wanted to eat food that I shouldn't. Um, and then I started the, uh, the two to three month process. And um, it was very interesting to me because around around July, uh, I want to say around mid-July, I went in for a checkup with uh, with Dr. Boyle, the surgeon. And I was 575, 570 pounds. Mm. And he looks and he goes, well, and I'm like, oh, great. There's that word, well. Right. Like, That's just what I needed. And he's like, well, I don't see the point in putting this off any longer. He goes, between the pre-op diet and the few weeks away that we are from like August, he goes, I might as well just put you on the schedule now. Wow. And I can't even begin to tell you how much that did not register with me. So I was like, okay, so I'll, I'll see you back in a couple of weeks. He goes, well, yeah. He goes, well, right now what I want you to do is go get your blood work and uh, and then meet with the uh, with the nutritionist again so we can go over the pre-op diet. Mm. And I'm like, okay, so then and then and then we're going to put me on the schedule. He goes, he goes, no, Carlos, you're not getting it. You're going to be on the schedule at the end of the day today. You're getting your surgery. Wow. And I was like, so I was like elated and then at the same time in a sense of shock. Oh, yeah. So I was, I literally was like, okay, thank you. Gave him a hug because he's a hugger. This doctor is a hugger. Mm. Um, but it doesn't feel like a fake hug. You know, the side hug that you get from people? That's not, right. you know, he full on embrace. Um, and I walked out into my car and I sat there for a second. And I was like, no. Like, that didn't just really happen, right? Like, I'm going to go home and it's going to be like, oh, well, you know, A, B, and C reason why this isn't going to happen. And uh, I was like, I'm going to get a phone call. And they're going to say, like, oh, hey, there's bad news. And I did, sure enough, get a phone call uh, later that day. Uh, but it wasn't bad news. It was to tell me that my surgery date was August. Oh, wow. And when they called me and told me that, I can't even begin to tell you the feelings I was getting. Because I was like, oh, this, uh, this, this really is happening. I mean... I wanted to laugh. I wanted to cry. I wanted to jump for joy and scream like, you know, like a 12 year old little girl. It was just, mm. it was, it was unbelievable to me. And so, you know, the process started and, you know, the, <laughs> the, you know, the work began. Um, I, you know, started, I got my blood work done. I started seeing, you know, the nutritionist. Uh, she gave me all the information for the pre op diet. Um, Anybody that's ever been through the surgery or has even 
contemplated the surgery knows that that pre-op diet is not fun. Um, I know a lot. A lot of my listeners probably aren't people that have been through that. So, what can you give us a quick snapshot of what that pre-op diet is like? Oh, absolutely. So essentially, you're on liquids, um, and not just like you know, liquids where like you're pretty much you're you're drinking protein, mm-hmm. so like protein shake. Um, and you're on an extremely calorie restricted diet. Um, so, for example, up until the you know the uh, the surgery scheduling, I managed to stick to a 1500 calorie diet, which was uh, not only assigned to me by the nutritionist for the surgeon, but by my therapist as well. Right. Um, so, 1500 calories was rather difficult to be to stick to to begin with, given the size of my stomach. Um, but this diet was somewhere along the lines of 700 calories. Oh, wow. So what happens with that is there's, there's a few reasons why they do that. For one, it's an all liquid diet, meaning the, the most, the most dense food you're consuming is jello. Mm-hmm. Um, they do that for several reasons. For one, to clear out the digestive tract, not so much for any other reason, except for the fact that they're going to be in there doing work in that area. So right. they want to make sure that it's, it's cleaned up. For another, and this was actually a recent revelation to me um, when I asked the surgeon, like, why, what was the need for the liquid diet? Um, especially, in, and I have to um, pretense this by saying, not everybody has a big liquid diet. Some people do, mm-hmm. and some people have it like maybe two to three days for the digestive tract. In my case, 611 pounds dropping down, um, when you have that much weight, there are, there's not just fat outside of your body. There's also fat in certain areas that it shouldn't be in. For example, right. uh, fatty tissue around your heart, which you can't really do much about um, until you lose the weight. But the fatty uh, tissue around the liver mm-hmm. is a huge problem when they're doing this kind of surgery because they need to move your liver out of the way right. to get to the uh, area in the stomach where they're going to be in. So when you have an extremely fatty liver, it's a problem. So this diet effectively reduces the amount of, uh, of fatty tissue around your liver. And it is not fun because you miss things like chewing. Like, I've never been a salad person. I can't tell you how badly I crave the salad. Oh, wow. You, you miss crunching food. You miss chewing food. And, you know, so any, so it's, you started, I would start my day off with a protein shake and maybe a jello. Um, you're immediately lacking energy because it's such a calorie restricted diet. Um, then lunchtime would be probably some broth, like eight ounces of broth and, uh, another jello or like a Greek yogurt, something with protein in it and essentially very low in sugar and low in calories, you know? So it was, uh, it was a difficult two weeks. Uh, it was not very fun, but it was very much worth it because, uh, before the surgery, he took a look at everything and said, yeah, you know, you've effectively reduced a lot of the fatty liver tissue um, that's in that area. And it's going to make my life a lot easier to do this. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. Up until the surgery date, I still had a hard time believing that this was going to happen. And um, it, it did happen. And it was... Uh, it was an incredible, uh, incredible thing because, you know, getting there, getting prepped, um, I was just so nervous. 
Um, I mean, I was like shaking like a leaf, nervous. It's as it is. Anybody who's ever been in an operating room or near an operating room knows how unbelievably cold it is in there. Mm. Um, and my surgeon was just, just he was just just so calm and soothing throughout the whole thing, and he just gave me this look. And it's funny because his was the last face I saw before I went to sleep. Right. And he just gave me this look like, it's going to be good. It's going to be all right. And it felt like I may have been asleep for like 10 minutes because I woke up and I was in the uh, recovery room. And, uh, you know, it wasn't, you know, some people are afraid. Some people who have maybe contemplated or thought about weight loss surgery are afraid of the pain, afraid of the changes. Um, there wasn't really pain. There was discomfort. Uh, it was what I can describe it to you as is it felt like I literally did about a thousand sit-ups. Mm. Um, that number is not exaggerated. It really felt right. like a thousand sit-ups and then immediately taking a scissor kick by Conor McGregor. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. There, so there, there's a, there's a vivid, a vivid picture for you. There is a very vivid picture for you. So, I mean, it was, it was a, like a not a burning but yeah like a tender burning sensation mm. um but the pain was manageable and you know i woke up and and the first thought was a this really does feel like a thousand set of conor mcgregor kicking you in the stomach and b did it really happen like did they actually do the surgery and like is this real right and you know sure enough uh after recovery and i got into my room and i got situated you know uh dr boyle came and checked on me with the nurse practitioner and you know told me everything went well a uh, very smooth process and uh within a few hours i was up and walking oh, wow. which is a very huge factor uh for several reasons with this surgery um for one the surgery is done uh, laparoscopically, which means they don't really open you up. They mm -hmm. do about five or six incisions, insert some tubes, and then they inflate you, kind of like a balloon. Yep. So that you can, uh, so that they have room to work in. And it's it's very minimally invasive, uh, and very effective. There is no real downside except for some discomfort um, from the from the gas that they use to uh, to inflate the the abdominal cavity. Um, the walking helps alleviate that issue. And as a heavy set person, they don't want you laying in bed for too long because uh, you can develop um, blood clots. Right. So which is dangerous in the, you know, in your legs and, you know, extremely dangerous, extremely dangerous because those can actually cause other issues in other parts of your body. If you develop mm -hmm. blood clot that happens to break off and travel. So, um, yeah, I literally asked the nurse to dose me with, uh, with some uh, pain medication and I was up and walking. Awesome. Um, it wasn't easy. It definitely wasn't, uh, the, the funnest experience, but you know, the process of recovering, um, was, you know, the, the, the pain, the discomfort, the, uh, the, you know, having to get used to everything was well worth it. I mean, it was well worth the effort. And so now this was August 15th, 2018. So we're coming up on a year. Uh, for anyone who's yep. listening to this in the future, it's, it's the first week in August of 2019. So can you, Carlos, take us into what was your life like right after the surgery? Like what were the immediate changes? So the immediate changes were, and this was really hard to believe um, beforehand, 
Uh, anybody who's ever experienced a hunger pang, which is pretty much everyone, um, knows how frustrating it feels to feel hungry. Um, for the first time in my entire life, I never, I didn't feel hunger. Mm. And that is both a relieving and daunting thing. Because when you don't feel hunger, you don't know that you're hungry. You have to watch for other cues. And that, unfortunately, takes a lot of training. Um, so it was just the whole fact of not having anything to digest, so not having to use the restroom much. Um, things like, uh, you know, not experiencing a hunger pang, so having to really monitor. Carlos, you there? If you can hear me, your sound dropped off. Still on? Hey, um, just so you know, you you were saying it, it's you know you were talking about the the hunger feeling, and then your sound dropped off. Like I can see on your side, you flat at you flatlined. Okay, um, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can definitely hear you now. Okay, so uh, yeah, so for the hunger pain, you know, it's uh, it's very, it's a surreal thing not to feel hungry. So you really have to watch out for um, you know other other cues like uh, feeling tired or um, feeling sleepy or maybe feeling a little grouchy. Uh, what 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 helped me a lot was setting timers to remind myself to drink my food because at that point for the first few weeks you're not really eating. Mm. Um, everything's still healing inside, so it's liquid for a while. Um, it was a, it was an interesting process. There's definitely a learning curve. Um, anybody who ever feels like this will be something quick and easy, you're in for a very big surprise. There's a lot of conditioning, not just physically, but mentally. Physically, your body's been put through a trauma, so you're healing, which makes you tired. Um, you add to the fact that you're not really consuming very much of anything. Um, that also compounds and adds to the, the feeling of fatigue. Um, you know, you're... Your mindset, you know, your your mind is telling you that you're hungry because you haven't eaten. Um, so even smelling food sometimes would trigger this feeling like, I think I'm hungry, but you're in reality not. So, and you can't, you can't consume a lot. There's, there's literally no space. So what happens is, um, for example, if prior to surgery, when, uh, when I would eat, if I overate, I would just go food coma. That no longer exists after surgery. You eat too much, it comes back up whether you want it to or not. Mm. So there's not a lot of space there. So you have to get used to that part of things. You also have to get used to the fact that um, you have to you have to consume your food at a much slower rate. And you know you have to change the timing up. Um, every surgery is different. Uh, so for example, you know the uh, the, the less invasive surgeries, um, people don't have the issue where they can continue drinking. They shouldn't, but most of the times it's not a problem. With the surgery I had, because it was more drastic due to my weight, um, you have to wait 30 minutes before you can drink it. Um, for several reasons. For one, it uh, if you eat and then drink, you can start to feel sick. And for another, if not, you don't feel sick. What'll happen is it'll wash the food out, 
and just make you quickly digest it and then you'll feel hungry. So that's a bit of a learning curve to learn to set a timer for 30 minutes and wait after you consume your food. Um, it, go ahead. No, I was going to say, so it sounds like, you know, like there's like to take a bigger picture, you basically had to relearn like a new way of eating, a new way to approach food. So it, it's lucky that you had started to work on those cognitive behaviors so that that could all mesh together for you. Um, and, and, and support this, this, cause it's not like, like you're saying it, even if you just, you tried to eat the way you used to eat, you're going to get sick. Like there was a, a literal physical impediment preventing you from doing that. So you had to figure out exactly how these processes work for you now and integrate that into your life. Exactly. And it, it is very much, uh, a mental game as much as it is physical. Um, there are there are times where your mind will tell you you need to eat more. You didn't eat enough, and your stomach is saying, "Don't even think about it. We're good down here. Don't mm. don't listen to that." So, um, it it's there's there's a good amount of learning curve there, um, but it's also very rewarding because, um, it's not necessarily that the weight flew off. But it was a um, it was a bit of a juggernaut effect. So you know you you start uh, trying to develop these uh, these habits to you know like you said relearn how to eat, when to eat, how much to eat, and then what's what it slowly starts becoming is you're not eating uh, you're not living to eat food anymore. Like you, food. Food is not the center point of your life anymore. At the, at that point in time, it, it becomes fuel. So, what ends up happening is, you know, you go through a, a few periods of adjustment. Uh, for me, I want to say about a couple of months post op, started feeling kind of bummed because there were certain things uh, that I wasn't. I, I felt like I wasn't able to enjoy food anymore. Sure. Um, for one, I had to stay away from Chinese. Food. Mm. Um, and part of me was like, well, no, I can, um, I can have certain things. I just can't have a whole bunch of this or a whole bunch of that. Well, that is what my therapist would refer to as rationalizing. Oh yeah. I'm trying to create a, create a compromise there to feed your habit. And there was, uh, there's a, there's a, something that I kind of wanted to share about that. That is, um, a lot of my conversations are what she calls big Carlos, little Carlos. Mm. little carlos is the five-year-old child who wants to eat the butter off the stick and you know eat copious amounts of chinese food and kind of lead the way and, and get us in trouble big carlos is the one holding on to the reins saying no no no, we can't do that you know we we can't uh we can't keep doing that and big carlos is the one who needs to keep things in check mm. so a lot of the times um little carlos would present an idea in my mind like, well, we can eat, you know, this part of the Chinese food, but not that part. And, you know, it does, it's not all bad. And we can eat some of this stuff because it's healthy. And Big Carlos would have to have a discussion and be like, you know very well that that is one of the main reasons we got to 611 pounds. It's that way of thinking. We cannot do that. We need to stay away from it. So a lot of the things that um, you have a propensity to, therapy really brought it out catastrophizing which is you know feeling like everything is gonna go wrong and you know letting it snowball into 
I'm never going to lose this weight. I'm always going to feel this way. You know, things like, uh, you know, uh, like I said, rationalizing, which is trying to make an excuse for a behavior that you want, knowing full well that it's not healthy. Uh, a lot of those things are things that you end up dealing with and, and coming to cope with uh, when it comes to this surgery. Again, everybody's case is different. Um, but in my case, there was a lot of, of mind games uh, to deal with. And, and it led through, you know, through a, a little bit of a, a period of readjustment because I felt a little bummed out that I couldn't enjoy food the way I did um, when I was 600 pounds. You know, food made me really happy, 600 pounds, because it was so good and it tasted really good. Uh, and the amount that I would eat, I, I loved being able to just binge on food. And with the surgery, you can no longer do that. Like, you can't go to a buffet and eat copious amounts of food because it literally will not fit. And, you know, mentally that, that messes with you a little bit. You have to learn that there are certain things you won't be able to do. And there are certain things that revolve around food that may not happen for you. Um, there are also certain foods that your body may not like after surgery. Mm. And they may be foods that you are really particularly fond of. Like, I was very, very fond of broccoli and cabbage. And my body will no longer tolerate it. It does not like it. It, it, it sits very, very differently with me. Mm. Um, carbs are another one. So I used to love, love noodles, pasta, rice. Um, literally, it, even if I wanted to have a little bit of it, I probably could a little bit, but it would sit in a way that would make me extremely uncomfortable. Oh, wow. It's um, it's difficult to describe, but it would sit very heavy in your stomach and would make you feel like you uh, were going to have a hard time digesting. Mm. So uh, having to relearn to stay away from that was also pretty difficult. Um, but as time progressed, and the, you know, and you your body goes through the period of readjusting, you'd be surprised what your body can learn to adapt and it uh it was a bit of a mind changer like i think back on it pretty often i do a lot of self-reflection um and mind you it's not like this has been years for me this was this was literally last right year. right we're, we're, you know? we're not even a full year out as we're talking today yeah i mean we're, we're literally about 49 maybe maybe 50 weeks out and mm. um you know I look back on it and it's like, wow, it's amazing now. You know, like if I, if I had a stress, like if I, if I had a craving of any kind of food, it was Chinese food. And now it's completely different. Uh, for one, I very seldom get cravings, um, because it's, it's, there's conditioning there. Mm. Um, but for another, it's, it's usually my body, my body, if it's going to crave anything, it's going to create, it's going to crave protein dense food. Oh, wow. Um, which is probably something I should touch on um, with the surgery that I had. And there, which can you, cause you haven't said yet, what surgery did you have? Just so people know. I had gastric bypass. So like the actual um, gastric, like I know sometimes people use that as an umbrella term, but you had the actual gastric by bypass. Yeah. I had the actual gastric bypass. So there's several surgeries there. Um, one of them is extremely antiquated, very seldomly used now, uh, which is the lap band. Mm -hmm. It was a it was a pretty big thing about ten years ago, right? Um, but it wasn't very effective long term, uh, and created a lot of complications. So now there's two widely accepted ones that are that are very often used. 
Um, one of them is titled, if you look at anybody's hashtag, it says BSG. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the vertical sleeve. BSG is vertical gastric sleeve, yeah. So, you know, it's they're not rerouting anything. They're literally just trimming off about 85% of your stomach and leaving you with a banana-shaped pouch. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, it is effective. It is very effective um, in the sense that it it creates not necessarily a restriction, but a limit to how much you can actually take in. Right. And so there are a lot of success stories about people that have had the gastric sleeve. And uh, and they're doing very well. Uh, like with each surgery, there are upsides and downsides yep. um, to it. So uh, the other one, which is significantly more restrictive and was a better fit for me, was the gastric bypass for several reasons. For one, they look at a lot of the comorbidities, uh, comorbidities that mm-hmm. are uh, associated with that. So my... BMI, which is the body mass index rate, was in the 70s, mm-hmm. um, which is extremely high. Uh, also, I had obstructive sleep apnea and type 2 diabetes. Right. For those three reasons alone, I was a perfect candidate for gastric bypass. Um, also, it's very restrictive. So you lose a pretty significant amount of weight pretty quickly within the first six months to a year, which is pretty ideal for somebody who has you know such a high weight. And, and since you're bringing that up, like, let's let people know, like, what what do you weigh today? So I weigh in every. So here's the funny thing. I weigh sure. in officially every Thursday. Sure. I actually weigh myself every day, which if you ask people that are close to me, they think that's a little excessive. But for me, I enjoy it because I can monitor weight fluctuation. Right. As of today, this morning, I weigh three hundred and nine Wow. So I've lost, I want to say, what is it, 302 pounds mm-hmm. total so far? That's incredible, man. Uh, and that's that's including before surgery, though. That's not including from right. surgery date, I weighed 527. But regardless of how you look at it, that's still 300 pounds. In oh, yeah. You're, so, you're, you're in a completely different body. I mean, as someone who's been followed, like, I we've been connected on Instagram for a long time from... Before yeah. you even, before you even started the new process last year, last spring, I think I had been, you know, we had been connected before that. And I remember, you know, a lot of these stories you're telling, I remember watching you go through and document a lot of that, but the physical change, like if, if you haven't looked at Carlos's page and we'll talk about like your actual address, but if you go to Carlos's page, like you can see a year ago, what he looked like and what he looks like now, like the physical changes it's it's striking it's striking. i think it was in your stories today you put someone took video of you while you were asleep um oh yeah which is not at all creepy not at all creepy um <laughs> not even it, a little bit right? not even a little bit not even a little bit but just for me honestly like seeing that i was like i i know what it feels like to be in a completely different physical body and you're in a completely different physical body right now. Like you're fit, the physics of your body are different. Like not just like we're talking a lot about like the, the internal rewiring and, and all those pieces, those changes that came with your surgery and like the way you have to eat now. But just physically, how you move and how you feel and how you breathe, all of that has to have changed. Oh, I mean, when people say night and day, um, it's it's very much night and day. I mean, I mean, there, 
the breathing part, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, I used to take videos of, you know, of myself and, and, you know, recordings of things. And, you know, you could hear me breathing in the background. Mm. Like, like full-on mouth breather breathing. And that's completely changed. The, the wheezy, agitated feeling is completely gone. Um, the fact that I can actually stand for more than five minutes without profusely sweating and having to lean back because my stomach is... is creating a back spasm you know right it's still very surreal to me um the fact that i was able to go back into my profession of working on cars as a mechanic instead of mm. managing a shop um is okay so i am here with carlos can you hear me carlos yes sir okay cool so carlos and i have been talking about where he's at right now. So less than a year, he's about 49, 50 weeks out from his surgery, the gastric bypass. Uh, Carlos is down from his highest weight of a year ago of 611 pounds. He's now 309 pounds. So he's over 300 pounds down, which is incredible. And we were talking about, we had, again, a little technical challenge, but we were talking about um, the, the, the dramatic change that occurs when you lose so much weight, especially losing it quickly and, um, so seeing those, those changes happen to your body. And like one of the big things Carlos was talking about was he's able to now, uh, he started, was an automotive technician working physically working on cars for years. And that was taken away from him by his size. And it's now been given back to him. And so it, it sounds like you, you've got a lot of your life being given back to you now, man. Uh, yeah, it really is an incredible feeling. Um, you know, back uh, before I, I had to make the realization that I couldn't do another job physically anymore, um, I had a hard time standing. Um, I couldn't really do anything without feeling like I was running out of breath. Right. Uh, you know, every job I did, I needed to take frequent breaks on. And now, you know, it, and that and that happened, that was that way for a few years, uh, you know, about three or four, about three years. So now getting back into the swing of it, and getting back to working on cars, I'm able to put in full on, you know, eight or nine hour days standing, mm. physically doing a lot of, uh, you know, exhausting work and, and feeling okay. Um, nice. what's, what's really strange to me is I actually, I mean, I've gone back and looked at pictures of after I finished trade school and started working full time in the automotive industry. Um, I'm actually lighter than I was back then. Wow. And that is, I mean, I think I'm honestly approaching, and again, it's, it's very difficult to pinpoint, you know, weights throughout high school, but I, I think sure. I'm honestly approaching um, pre-college slash high school weight, which, uh, <clears throat> which is incredibly uh, surreal. You know? Oh, for sure. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's just so weird. Um, Anybody that knows me personally knows how competitive I am when it comes to, um, you know, my weight loss journey. Uh, not necessarily competitive with other people, but with myself. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm I'm like on the cusp of hitting the 200s, and I can taste it. Right. So, oh yeah, I know that well. You know, so it's a uh, it's an amazing feeling uh, to be able to uh, have the uh, not just the the physical stamina to be able to do this job again, but energy level mm. um it's just completely you know 180 degrees i mean 
I would work, you know, as a manager and be exhausted all the time. And it's not that, you know, office work or managing isn't tiring. It's tiring in its own way, mentally and emotionally. And, you know, and then sometimes, yeah, also physically. But this job is a physically rigorous job. Um, so to be able to do it eight or nine hours a day and come home and still have energy to do other things and still have energy to go to the gym in the morning before going to work, it's um, it's a life that I honestly never thought I would be able to achieve. And I'm incredibly grateful. That's amazing, man. And you just you just mentioned the gym. I know one of the things that you and I have talked about a couple of times is um, this: the surgery isn't just a magic wand that changes everything for you. It's a it's a tool that's a part of your process. But you talked about other tools, like you've had like the the work you did with the therapist to build those new patterns and those new that new consciousness and awareness. It really sounds like that was a big help for you as well. But now you know you you had to learn a new way to eat. But you've actually gotten into working out and like, you know, that's a big part of your journey now too. like tell people what it I, I want people to be able to get into realizing that you don't just flip a switch having the surgery and everything immediately changes. But you put you're putting in some hard work to make these numbers appear and make this make this happen, man. Uh, tell people what, what that's like for you now. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, there is that there is that uh, that stigma out there that's like, oh. This is the easy way out. The, the surgery, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not. It's, you're just every bit as committed and it's, it's a very helpful and efficient tool for people, you know, to, uh, to consider if they've had, uh, you know, reasons for, for believing that it would be necessary medically for them. Mm -hmm. But it's, you still have to put in the work, not just mentally to, like, like we said, to, you know, to change your, your way of thinking and your way of eating, but, you know, physically, it's, you know, in and of itself, you, uh, you need to develop a, a routine of a consistent exercise. And um, <clears throat> I'll be honest with you, my, my very first beginning, uh, you know, trip to the gym, I had a very different mentality. I was like, oh, I'm just going to do, uh, I'm going to do cardio to, you know, because my doctor was like, you got to get your steps in. You got to be moving. You have to aim for at least 10,000 steps a day. And I was like, man, I'm doing 2,500 and I'm tired. That's like 10,000. Mm. And um, which is actually, you know, it, it sounds daunting. It's not as bad as you would think. But mm. so I would do a lot of cardio. And uh, a couple of the guys that saw me at the gym, uh, the, at the local gym that I go to here, which they're very, very encouraging people here. Um, they were just like, hey, you know, we've noticed you've been losing weight. That's really cool. And I told them about the bypass. And I told them, yeah, I'm trying to do a lot of cardio and slim down to this weight and then bulk up. And they looked at me like, Hey, like if you don't mind, I'd like to tell you that the real way to, to do this is also to, you know, lift weights. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not, they didn't necessarily mean like bodybuilder status, but lifting weights also uh, does a few things for you, which actually I did some research and found out, found it to be true. Oh, yeah. Um, with this surgery, you lose a lot of weight quickly, but it not, it's not always the kind of weight you need to lose. Mm. Because you're severely restricted and you're up to a certain sense malabsorptive, yep. uh, which is one of the reasons that anybody who ever has the gastric bypass needs to be on a constant stream of uh, nutrients and vitamins. Mm. You also lose a lot of muscle mass because your, your body is consumed, because you're so restricted in what you can eat or how much you can eat, rather. Um, your body's consuming anything it can um, mm. to to burn as fuel, uh, and that 
really, uh, you know, is a great thing, but if you don't incorporate an exercise routine, you will become extremely malabsorptive because you'll lose a lot of your muscle mass. So aside from doing, uh, you know, cardio workouts like running, walking, treadmill exercises, um, incorporating weightlifting, whether it's light or heavy weight or whatever you want to, whatever variation of that you want to use is also extremely important to build and maintain the muscle mass that's required for your body to work right. And I never knew that. I honestly thought like, oh, you know, I'll get down to like the 200s, you know, and then start working out and, and bulking up. I didn't want to, sure. my mentality was I don't want to build muscle on top of the fat, not realizing that that is not how your body works. Mm, not at all. You're right. You're right, man. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, for one, it helps you burn calories. And then at the same time, you're also building the muscle that's required to keep your body going. And I mean, I started, uh, you know, the, the surgery was in August. I went to the gym a little bit in September, October. Um, had to have foot surgery, so I took some time off. And I felt kind of bummed out because I was like, see, I felt like, you know, I always tried before the surgery to have somewhat of a consistent gym routine, and it would always fizzle out within a few months. And I felt really disappointed about that. And then I was like, you know, I need, I need to try this again because I am losing the weight. And this is, I didn't go through everything I went through just to not take advantage of the second lease online. Right. So, uh, starting like very, like, actually, I, I want to say starting in January, but it was really starting late December. Um, I started going back to the gym and I started incorporating cardio and weights. And I didn't think that it would be as huge of a factor or a role in my life as it is right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I never thought I would be that guy that would be at the gym at like five thirty in the morning, mm -hmm. getting a good sweat in, getting a good pump, and and being like this sets the tone for my day. You know, um, it sets my energy level. It's it wakes me up, and you know, it may sound to, to anybody listening out there, it may sound crazy. Like this guy works on cars eight or nine hours a day. How are you going to go to the gym, work out, and then go work on cars? Um, you'd be surprised how quickly your body adapts to that feeling and starts to crave it. Um, my body literally craves the gym. Mm. It, it's, it's, it's a feeling that's very difficult to quantify or explain, but it's, it's a situation where my day doesn't feel complete if I don't have some kind of physical exercise. And the reason I say that it's difficult to quantify that is because I've never in my life been like that. Even in high school, when I played football, I hated exercise. I loved hitting people. I hated mm. the exercise with it. Um, and now it's, it's completely the opposite. I feel most comfortable when I'm at the gym lifting weights or doing cardio or just working up a sweat, elevating the heartbeat. It's, it's an incredible feeling that I, honestly do not see myself getting tired of any time well that, that's incredible man like especially looking at like your journey from being the the man that had troubles you know standing on the beach and now activity is something that is is an integral part of your life and your experience like i i think your your journey is a great a great look at how we all look for the tools and and those people that have success stories find the tools that are going to be the best fit for where they are and what they need. Like you, you were in a physical crisis. Your body was breaking down. 
you were headed towards dying and you found a way to get yourself a lifeline. And I, th- I think there's something really powerful there. Like what, what I would like to know, Carlos, because we've been talking for a while now, you and I, we, we, we've been spending our entire Saturday afternoon together, uh, which I have really appreciated. And I've appreciated your, your honesty kind of diving into what you went through, because I think, I think no matter what route people choose, whether they are someone who is using, uh, looks at weight loss surgery or uses the keto diet or uses Weight Watchers or uses just if it fits your macros, whatever plan or tool you find that works for you, use it, embrace it. And like you're saying, build it into it to being an integral part of your life. Think about what you put in your body and how you move your body. Like think about the, your mentality and your emotions. Like I really think you role model for all of us that intentionality of, of, of process. Um, I think that's really an awesome thing. I would like, you know, for, as, as we start to, to end our discussion today, to get your perspective on someone out there who's thinking about surgery and they see it as, yeah, maybe they are in a place where they've tried every, a lot of other things and they're feeling like they don't have another choice, but they also have that little voice inside saying, I just need to do this and it's going to be easy. What would you say to that person? Um, I would honestly say, for one, take a step and actually look at, is this surgery right for me? Right now, I'm going to say, let's look at the umbrella of weight loss surgery in general. Because mm. um, the only real way you'll know if which surgery is correct for you is if you speak to a surgeon and they give you a consultation and look at your medical history. Um, so uh, leaving that part of it aside, the is weight loss surgery right for me? And also, this is going to be an easy way to do this. Um, the easiest way to tackle that is you have to look at your circumstances in life. Is this a situation where, you know, you uh you feel that this will be the the quickest recourse for you because you want to you want to lose weight quickly or is this more of a recourse where you need to lose mm. weight it's a necessity not right. a, you know and it, there's nothing wrong with wanting to lose weight quickly everybody wants sure. to lose weight as quickly as possible um but there's a, a very big difference medically and uh emotionally whether it's something that you physically need right now for life-saving situations or because you're in dire need or because you want the results right away this is not a fast tool um yes i did lose 300 pounds in in a, in a about a year's worth of time um and it is fast but that doesn't mean it was easy. Um, right. There were a lot of days where I had not just physical struggles, but mental struggles. Mm. Um, I don't think there's enough of, uh, I want to say, awareness um, as to the me- uh, the mental and emotional struggle that you go through with this surgery. Mm. Um, there are a lot of, you know, defeated feelings. There's a lot of what we call fat in the brain. Um, there's a very high sense of body dysmorphia where you look in the mirror and you still see that heavy person sometimes. And it's difficult to keep track of that. Um, there's a lot of, you know, uh, physical setbacks that may come with it. Uh, I've known people personally that have had issues, uh, not necessarily with the surgery itself, but with complications post-op. Mm. It's not an easy road, you know, where it's just, like you said earlier, it's not a magic wand where in a few months you're going to be skinny again and you're going to feel great. If you don't tackle the mental 
issues that are there and mentally prepare yourself for the road ahead, it's not going to be as successful as you think. And the thing is that if you're not careful with this tool, you can start to regain weight. Unfortunately, mm. it's happened to, to a few people. Um, and it's it puts you in an even worse mental state than when you started because now you've had the surgery and you're regaining back because you didn't stick to the process. So there's a high level of discipline that's involved also um, when it comes to that because people sometimes may think like, oh, I can have the surgery and I just won't be able to eat as much, but I'll still be able to eat what I want. Mm. You don't condition yourself to relearn habits and, and relearn new habits and break old habits that got you to where you are, the surgery will not be a complete success. It'll just be a temporary remedy. I, I, I think that's an, an excellent, excellent way to, to, to put it in perspective. I know from my experience, like I, as, as much as I'm connected in the keto world, I have a lot of friends that have had the surgery and, and you know, and I, I'm lucky enough to talk to you and, and an earlier episode, I had John Arpino, J Arp's journey. He also has, has been very successful. And the common thread that I see is that both of you entered into this process with your eyes open and, and knowing that you needed to look at everything that was going to happen and the potentialities of it all and, and think about the actual work you need to put in because it's not, it's, it's not a light switch, uh, but it's just another avenue. And so I, I, I think it's commendable, man, that you found yourself in crisis and, and found the strength. Because really, for me, the crux of your story isn't even that you had the surgery done. It's that when you hit that rock bottom and you had accepted it, you eventually found the strength to, 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 to reach out again, to look for help. And to start working on yourself. And, I, and that right there is the piece that I think people sometimes miss. Like, you have to be willing to take those steps for yourself that it's not always easy to do. Because sometimes we're beaten down so much that we get stuck in that place. And finding a way to get out of it is, is important. And, and when we reach out, you know, we, we find those lifelines for you. You had, you know, you were... You were preparing to say goodbye to everyone in your family and your life, and and they pushed back. And and there's, I I'm sure that's something you're eternally grateful for. But I just hearing your story, I'm grateful for what they did for you because I've seen amazing changes in you over the past year that go deeper than just your weight changing. Like your your perspective and your energy has really become something that I think is is a strong force that that people can learn a lot from. So I. Just really appreciate you taking the time, you know, to spend this this fair amount of time going into depth of what that that journey has been like for you and what it was like to live at rock bottom and, and find your way back. So I just want you to know that you, that you're appreciated, man. No, man, I, I really appreciate it. I it's it's one of those things where I started this weight loss account, um, hoping that I'd be able to have a platform to encourage people. Um, mm whether it's through keto, through calorie restriction, through, I mean, even Weight Watchers or just, you know, diet and exercise or through surgery. Yep. Don't feel that you can't do this. Don't feel that there is no hope because if anything, you know, people like you, people like me, people like, uh, you know, John, uh, Arpino, he, we've all been there. Um, you know, even, even Jay Reed, you know, he's yep. also had 
you know, incredible success, we've all, we've all felt that despair. Um, but there is a huge community that's willing to help. And there is, you know, always a way out of the situation. Um, and, and I've always, I've always hoped that at some point in time, uh, my story would be not, uh, not for like, uh, to be something, something that somebody can look at and be like, wow, he's been like an inspiration. Like he did right. it. He was able to get it done. He was able to, with, with whatever avenue you choose, you know, um, to know that there's always, there's always light there. There's, you know, you don't, you don't have to accept the situation just because it's there. No matter how badly you feel like there's no hope, you know, there's always a way around. It. Mm. That, that's a great way to put it, man. And I hope that anyone listening who is interested in connecting with you or wants to have these discussions, you know, e you know, to get some support for, from Carlos, you know, he's putting himself out there. Uh, how can people connect with you, Carlos? What's the best way for them to do that? Uh, easiest way is going to be on Instagram. Um, mm -hmm. My weight loss account. Uh, the it's uh, it's at cataclysmic underscore titan um that would probably be the easiest way for everybody uh to uh connect with me there um currently my page is set to private just because i had a few security issues last year with people spamming my page and stealing mm. doing things but um i'm on that page constantly posting content you know and uh you know just gym check-ins and things like that. Uh, there's a great support team there. Uh, so if you send me a request or send me a message, I will see it. I will add you. Um, and anybody that ever needs to talk, I'm always on there. So I more, you know, by all means, don't ever hesitate to reach out if you have questions, comments, you know, anything. That, that's awesome, man. So normally when I'm, when I'm wrapping up with the guests, I always say, you know, what else do you want to, you know, what else did you want to talk about? What else do you want to say? But I, I feel like with you, I have, I have a question that I want to, I want to end, end your story with. Um, and it doesn't have to be, don't worry. It doesn't have to be a five second answer. I'm not putting you on like a, it's not like a game show. Um, you don't have to give me one word, but I would like to know, because I think one of the things that is, is most exciting isn't just that you've done so much in a year. But you've got a lot of years ahead of you now. So what comes next for you, Carlos? What are you putting in place to make sure that your success continues and that you're able to maintain this journey going forward? Well, I've always been the kind of person that's always asked myself, what's next? Um, mm. Knowledge, the milestones and the goals, but I never stop keeping my eyes forward. Like, what's next? What's after this? What are we doing? So once, I mean, my ultimate goal is obviously to be in peak physical health, not just now, but in the future. And also to set an example for my family and uh, friends that I have, you know, around me. So next, as far as goals, once I hit goal weight, um, would obviously be um, working on, uh, on fine tuning the physique, uh, building the muscle structure. Um, and then also, I've been seriously looking into uh, weight, uh, skin surgery, skin removal mm. surgery. Anybody that knows, you know, uh, the, the struggle has seen the process. Um, when you lose, you know, two, three, four hundred pounds, there's a lot of excess skin that was holding oh, yeah. that place. And now it's just kind of dangling there. So um, it's as much as I want to say like, oh, yeah, because it'll help me feel like I look better. It's also a medical thing. 
for me. Like it, that weight is uh, that that hanging skin's also weight, and mm. it's it's in the way. So that is definitely something that I'm going to be looking into. Um, and then just continuing the process to uh, to uh, continue to improve the physique. Um, I've never really been much for uh, like physique contests, even though I can definitely respect and appreciate people that do that because it is an insane amount of work. I've more looked into things like maybe strongman, mm. um, maybe not necessarily competing, but kind of training alongside that style of physique. Sure. Um, sure. One of the uh, one of the people who is now, a, of course, a highly uh, revered actor uh, and and uh, an entrepreneur uh, is uh, Dwayne Johnson. Yep. Um, always look at him for that. I've always looked at him in the sense of if you ever watch one of his workout videos at Iron Paradise, which is his gym, it is ridiculously insane the way this man trains. And I can't help but highly respect and emulate that. So, I mean, although it'll probably never come to fruition, it would be completely awesome to ever get like a one hour training session with him. Mm. None of that like fanboy thing where it's like, oh my God, can I get your autograph? It's like, nah, dude, bring a lunch. We're here to work. Right, yeah. right. That's awesome. Um, yeah, just things like that. Just continue training, continue building the muscle, building the physique, um, and then just long-term living a healthy, happy life. You know, right. and and never forgetting where it came from, but also constantly looking forward to ask myself what's next. You know, what else can I do to? Uh, you know, maybe I, I've also looked into maybe Spartan racing. Mm. Um, that also is another avenue that I've thought of, and it's. It's funny. I've I've always hated running, right? For some reason, thinking about maybe not like competitively running, but just being able to like run in general, has always been something that is that is interesting. So whatever my future holds, um, there's going to be a, a very strong degree of uh, of weight training, muscle building, and uh, and any physical activity possible. With right. Well, I, for one, have no doubt that we're going to see some exciting things coming for you. So I hope that anyone out there who's interested in, to hear what Carlos has to say, we'll send you that request, you know, get involved with your account um, because there, it seems like, you know, there, there's some fast moving things happening for you, man. So just keep up the great work. And, and I just continue to hope that you're able to, to build on this amazing foundation that you've got going already. So thank you again, Carlos, for spending some time with me today. Anytime, man. Always here. Great, great. Well, thank you again so much, Carlos. And thank you all for listening to this episode of the Fat Guy Forum. Uh, it's been my pleasure to, to take you into the life of another guy out there and, and show you that as, as dark and, and, and challenging as things can get, sometimes you can, can be the driving force and turning around uh, where, where things are headed. So think about that for yourself. Don't forget to do something today to amaze yourself, because as always, my listeners, you're the most amazing people I know. This is your host, Gourmet. You can find me on Instagram at Gourmet underscore goes underscore keto. You can find me on Twitter at Gourmet Goes Keto. No underscores or dashes there, just at Gourmet Goes Keto. Or you can email the program at thefatguyforum at gmail.com. Have a great day, everybody, and we'll be back with you real soon.